0: All right, if you have your Bibles, please go ahead and turn in them with me to Exodus chapter 30. Exodus chapter 30, today we are coming to the end of God's careful instruction to Moses about how to build the tabernacle, and we are going to read Exodus chapter 30 and 31. Friends, these are the very words of God. He says, you shall make an altar on which to burn incense, you shall make it of acacia wood, a cubit shall be its length and a cubit its breadth, it shall be square and two cubits shall be its height, its horn shall be of one piece with it, you shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and around its sides and its horns and you shall make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make two golden rings for it, under its molding on two opposite sides of it, you shall make them, and they shall be holders for poles with which to carry it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony, where I will meet with you. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it. A regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it or, or a burnt offering or a grain offering. And you shall not pour a drink offering on it. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. He shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among you when you number them. Each one is numbered in the census shall give this. "...half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary, the shekel is twenty geras, half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from twenty years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives." You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. The Lord said to Moses, You shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar and you shall put water in it with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet. When they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. The Lord said to Moses, Take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and of sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much, that is 250, and 250 of aromatic cane, and 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hin of olive oil. And you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil, blended as by the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil." With it you shall anoint the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the table and all its utensils and the lampstand and its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils and the basin and its stand. You shall consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them will become holy. The Lord said to Moses, Take sweet spices, stacte and onica and galbanum, sweet spices with pure frankincense, of each shall there be an equal part, and make an incense blended as by the perfumer, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. You shall beat some of it very small and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting where I shall meet with you. It shall be most holy for you. And the incense that you shall make according to its composition, you shall not make for yourselves. It shall be for you holy to the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to use as a perfume shall be cut off from its people. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Ur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft." And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahissamach, of the tribe of Dan, and I have given to all able men ability, that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting, "...and the ark of the testimony, and the mercy seat that is on it, and all the furnishings of the tent, and the table and its utensils, and the pure lampstand with all its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the basin and its stand, and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests, and the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense for the holy place." According to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Friends, I don't know about you, but I can at times feel like the Christian life is a complicated thing, kind of like the Christmas season, right? December in our minds, at least in our thoughts, Christmas is supposed to be very simple. It's supposed to be peaceful and restful and full of cheerful moments and thoughtful memories. But then December 1st hits and all chaos breaks loose. You have your company party, you have your kids recital, you have the fellowship group cookie exchange, you have to buy a Christmas tree, you have to move that elf from one shelf to the next, you have the advent calendar, you have to buy presents and stocking stuffers. It's a lot of work. Even the restful parts of December can feel like work because I think in the Shori home, I think there are 59 movies that we feel like we must watch every single December and so it's stressful to know which one we should watch first. I think we should start watching multiple at a time, or at least all of the hallmarks together, because they're all exactly the same. That would be more efficient. In theory, the Christmas season seems simple, but in reality, it can be very complicated. And I think that we can feel the same way about our Christian life. The sound of it can be simple. The, the gospel is indeed very simple. Christ died for our sins. That, that's the simplicity of the gospel, and we must not complicate it more than that. But when it comes to living out the Christian life, it can feel much more complicated than just that. We have to go to church. We have to pray. We have to serve. We have to fellowship. We have to evangelize. Something that in theory sounds really good and simple can become very burdensome very, very quickly. If we're not careful, the Christian life can begin to feel like the month of December year-round. Lots of good ideas, lots of good intentions, but a whole lot of stress and pressure to get things exactly right, and when we fail to get them right, a whole lot of condemnation that follows. Isn't this true? Don't you feel this in your soul? But church family, we must remember what the Christian life is all about. It, It is about relationship with God. It is about dwelling with him. You do all that you do in the month of December because of the people that you love and the relationships that you have. It's it's the relationships that lead you to do so many of those things. And it ought to be the same with our Christian lives. We, We are not called to live busy, chaotic Christian lives in the absence of relationship. No, relationship must be very central to our religious practice and pursuits. And friends, today we see a lot of this in our text. In these two chapters, we see very strong direction given about things that the Israelite people must do. Not doing these things is not an option for them. But what we also see is that relationship and joy are central to them all. These concluding instructions about the tabernacle, they are meaningful because they are marked by relationship it's, it's almost like God is coming to the end of his instruction and wanting to summarize chapters 25 to 29 by saying okay now that we've covered all that detail let me remind you what it's for it's for joy it's for relationship it's for a healthy and rich and robust relationship with me the the, the busyness of the Christmas season is made easier when we remember the relationships behind it and it ought to be the same in our Christian lives Much of what we read in this section of Exodus is described by the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament as regulations for worship. And that that word regulation, that that does not feel like a relational word very much. Wow. (laughs) That's some rain. That word regulation does not feel like a relational sort of Word, but what we need to do is consider this text and how it invites us to see that relationship is at the very center of it all. The main idea for our sermon this morning is this. God's regulations for worship are joyful gifts to our souls. And in order to consider this together, we need to consider five regulations for worship as seen in this text. Regulation number one, to pray. Regulation number two, to give. Number three, obey. Number four, create. And number five, rest. That's where we're headed. Let's begin with the first regulation, which is to pray. I really love that the conclusion of God's extensive instruction about the tabernacle here, it begins with the altar of incense in verses 1 to 10. Its, it's design of the, of the altar of incense can be seen in verses 1 to 5. It's, it's not big, it's not ornate, it's, it's three feet high, about one and a half feet wide, and one and a half feet long. It looks something like this picture behind me. It was very simple compared to many of the other pieces of furniture. But listen, beyond its design, we must consider what it was for. And we can determine a little bit of what it was for by considering where it was located. And, and we see that in verse 6. It says, And you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony, where I will meet with you. So, so this altar of incense is to be right outside the Holy of Holies. So so even though there's a thick curtain separating, it's not far from the Ark of the Covenant. It's actually just a few inches away. They are very closely connected. Why? Because this altar of incense symbolizes the relationship that God desires to have with his people. The altar of incense was not just practical in that it was to make the air smell fresh in the tabernacle because of all of the sacrifices there. That's probably part of its purpose, but that's not the only purpose. There is a spiritual purpose as well, and that spiritual purpose is prayer. Listen, biblically speaking, there is a significant connection between the altar of incense and the prayers of God's people. In Psalm 141, the psalmist says, May my prayer be set before you like incense. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 8, it says that the bowls of incense are the prayers of the saints. Even in Luke chapter 1, verse 8, during the Christmas story, with the story of Zechariah the priest, it says that he went into the temple to burn incense, and it says when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. The biblical image of incense is prayer. Even as the burning of this incense would allow smoke and beautiful aromas to be lifted into the air, it's a picture of how our prayers are to rise before the Lord. And yes, in this situation, there's a thick curtain separating this altar from the very presence of God. But one commentator said that this altar of incense is like a plug or an electric outlet into the wall. God's presence and power with the ark behind the curtain and the incense of prayer plugging into it. The altar of incense is it's yet another reminder of God's presence and how it invites communion with his people. And it's a reminder of how that communion has been made possible. And we see that very interestingly Because the altar of incense in many ways is a miniature form of the altar of sacrifice out in the courtyard. They both look very similar. They're both perfect squares. They both have horns on their corners. And that reminds us that the only way to be able to pray and to be in fellowship with this holy God is through the atonement, through the sacrifice that happens before The altar of sacrifice has a direct connection to the altar of incense. Atonement of sins inevitably leads to richness of relationship. In other words, the the gospel should lead us towards praying atonement leads to the incense of intercession and communion with our God. And it's true here, but even more so now that that veil has been torn asunder by the work of Christ. And so, Redeemer family, let's pray. Let us be a praying people. Prayer makes sense of the tabernacle. Prayer makes sense of the gospel itself. It's for relationships. Prayer is to be the first, I think, the the greatest fruit of the gospel in our lives. Is, Is it a regulation? Yes, it is. God commands us to pray. But it's not a burden. It's a joy. Christian, let me encourage you. If you're weary, if you're tired, if you're exhausted this December, if you feel joyless in your walk with Jesus, plug into the power and the goodness of God through prayer. Speak to him. Share your burdens with him. Talk to him. He's there and he can hear you. Honestly, friend, groan to him. He doesn't even need you to articulate your words. On the way home in the car today, just groan your burdens before him. Raise that incense before him. Use the words, Lord, I need you every hour. I need you. Pray to him. Seek him. I've been praying, I've been praying for each and every one of you by name for greater prayerfulness in our lives. And I've been praying it individually, but I've also been praying it corporately. Oh, that we would offer the incense of prayer before the Lord. I love how verse eight speaks about this incense being offered regularly, every morning, every evening. Why? Because our relationship with God is to be that constant and more. Oh, Redeemer, may we be a praying Church, may people hear and see our prayerfulness and say something smells good about that church over there. They have a relationship with God. I want part of that. That brings us to our second regulation, which is to give. And so we move from the altar of incense in verses 1 to 10 to what kind of feels like a random insertion about the census tax that was to be taken up in verses 11 to 17. The Lord said to Moses, when you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. What is this? And why is it here in the story? Well, friends, it would seem that God actually cares about numbering and identifying who is among his people. Taking a census was to be a normal thing. For Israel, the, the identity of God's people is not supposed to be ambiguous or confusing. It's supposed to be very clear. God wants there to be clarity about who is among his people and who is not. Which again is one of the reasons why we love membership so much here at Redeemer Fellowship. God identifies and numbers his people. He wants them to be very clearly numbered. That's a good thing. But how we number ourselves... Is important, And I think that is why we find this at this point in the story after the altar of incense, which is about prayer. Because how we number ourselves reflects how we view ourselves. If we number ourselves in pride or as a way to make much of ourselves, well then we, we fail to commune and have relationship with God as we should. We've wandered from the priority of relationship and we will not be prayerfully dependent upon him. So so even as they were called to number themselves for practical purposes, they were to do so, it says, in humility and and giving money was an act of humility. Giving money is a way through which we, in a sense, release ourselves and release our possessions and release our identities to God, to, to give It's to say that our trust and our identity is not in ourselves or in our numbers. It's not in our physical strength or in our position in this world. And we see that here because the census tax was was not very much money. Verse 13 says that it was just a half shekel. That's, That's almost nothing. But listen, it's not about the amount of money that's given. It's about what the money communicates. It communicates humility, that we are dependent on the Lord. The the census tax was just another way for them to prayerfully acknowledge that even as they grew numerically strong, they were still spiritually weak. They still needed God's help. Financial giving throughout all of God's word is a primary way through which we make much of God's grace in our lives. Verse 12 actually says that this shekel is a ransom for their lives. And that does not mean that they were buying their salvation. Now we know that their redemption was was fully free, but this ransom money is a statement of humility and gratitude for all that God had already freely given to them. And so friends, it is with us. God has fully and freely ransomed us by the blood of Jesus. And so we, like the Israelites, should joyfully Live generous lives back to him. We should joyfully live obedient lives back to him. And that brings us to our third regulation, which is to obey. Verse 18, you shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar and you shall put water in it. The the fact that this bronze basin was for washing and that it is put between the tent of meeting, as seen in this picture, the fact that it's placed here is significant because it highlights the the ongoing work of purification and washing that needs to happen even after our sins had been fully atoned for, right? Isn't it true? That some of us can have the thought, well, if our sins have been paid for, if our sins have been atoned for, then why do I really need to care about how I live? Who cares about holiness? Who cares about godliness? Who cares about obedience? But what we see here with the basin is very different than that. The altar out in the courtyard is where God's mercy is first experienced. The sacrifice of a substitute for us, that is the central motif of the gospel and of God's word. Penal substitutionary atonement is absolutely central. The altar of sacrifice symbolizes our justification. When you and I put our faith in the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf, we are saved. We are declared to be righteous. Salvation is as simple as that altar. But we must also acknowledge how we are to respond to God's saving grace. And the Bronze Basin reminds us that after the sacrifice for our sins, a response is absolutely necessary. But listen, the order of these things matters greatly. If the Israelites, as we have learned, walk through the doorway into the courtyard from the east side, if the first thing that they see before them is a wash basin, do you know what they're going to think? They're going to think that to approach the tabernacle, to approach God's presence, they need to clean themselves up and make themselves holy before the Lord. If they see the wash basin first, that's what they're going to think. If the wash basin comes first, the tabernacle is no different from any other religion out in this world, no different than Catholicism, no different than Mormonism or anything else. It would be based entirely on our ability to earn our way back to God. That's what the message of the tabernacle would be if the wash basin comes first. But praise God, it doesn't. The altar comes first. And this is because our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. If the wash came first, we'd be doomed. But because the altar comes first, we know that salvation is by faith alone in the finished work of Christ alone. Church, it's, it's that simple. But listen, the fact that grace and mercy comes first does not mean that there is no wash basin in the courtyard. No, it's right there. After the altar and before the tabernacle, and it's a big deal throughout verses 18 to 21. It says repeatedly, if they fail to use it rightly, they will die. Listen, even though they have had a sacrifice offered on their behalf, even though in a sense their sins have been paid for and atoned for, they still would die if they did not wash. Why? Well, because their ceremonial washing was the right response to what had been done for them. It would be wrong for their sins to be atoned for and then for them not to care about how they approach the holiness of God and to run into his presence carelessly. No, the altar of sacrifice changed their position before God. Their sins were atoned for, but they still needed to demonstrate their understanding of that sacrifice through their washing. Church, it's the same with us. We need to respond to the purifying work of Christ on our behalf by pursuing real purity and washing ourselves clean of sin whenever and however we can. Will we do it perfectly? Never. Not until the day we see Jesus face to face. But we must do it because this demonstrates that we truly understand what the sacrifice was all about. It demonstrates the sincerity of your faith. Friends, this is why in in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is why the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12, after speaking of the complete and eternal work of our great high priest Jesus, he says, strive for holiness, the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. This is why James says in James chapter 2, faith is, Without obedient works is dead faith. Church, this is so central to God's word and Redeemer family. It must be central to us as well. God wants to wash us clean. He wants to purify us, not just positionally. That has already been done In his eyes, we have, through Christ, been vicariously made holy in him. Our position is secure, but he wants to wash us practically. He wants to transform us from one degree of glory into the next. And church, we gotta care about this. We can't be indifferent to it. We can't say, well, that's God's work, not mine. No, God's word says that you have been sanctified, set apart for a purpose. Now walk in that calling. And friends, we see how much this holy matters, this holiness matters throughout this text, right? With with the wash basin, with the anointing oil, with how it consecrates things for God's purposes. We see it in verses 34 to 38 and how there's a very specific way to make the incense. We see it all the way back in verse 9 when it says that they they must not offer unauthorized incense. In other words, these things are sacred. They are consecrated, they are sanctified, they're set apart for a purpose. They have been made holy to the Lord. God has a very specific and very holy purpose for their existence. Christian, he does for you as well. God has a very specific and very holy purpose for your life in this world. You have been consecrated. You have been made holy to the Lord. To ignore this is to demonstrate that you don't truly understand the sacrifice that was given. Does anybody have essential oils in their house? Any of you like, yeah, you like, okay. Okay. We have, we have a few different, different diffusers and stuff, and I like them. Some of them are better than others, but I don't feel strongly about them. But can you imagine if I took one of the essential oil diffusers and I began to use it in an unauthorized way? What, what if I took Tabasco sauce and poured it in there? What if I took ketchup or, or mayonnaise or, or pickle juice and poured it? Or what if I took bacon grease? Actually, that's not a bad idea. <laughs> we, we should really think about that. That's a pretty good idea, actually. But what if I poured all of that stuff into those diffusers? It'd be terrible. It would show that I did not truly understand what the diffuser was for. And church, it's the same for us with the bronze basin and the demand for only authorized incense. It shows us the need to respond rightly to the sacrifice that has been offered. To, to not care about obedience, Christian. Christian, to not care about Purity. To not want to become more like Jesus in practical ways this week is to demonstrate that you don't truly understand the altar of sacrifice that was given and the faith that you claim to be real might actually be dead. Church, may we be a holy people. May we celebrate the altar of sacrifice. May we celebrate the lamb who was slain in his perfect work on our behalf and may we walk in the goodness of that and wash ourselves clean by his grace and mercy. That brings us to our fourth regulation and that is to create. I've always loved the beginning of Exodus 31. I've always looked forward to a time when I could preach it. Uh, Not because I am an artist myself, I am very much not an artist, I have very little artistic ability, but I've wanted to preach it because I love those who are artistic within the church and I'm eager to encourage and honor them for what we see in this text. In Exodus chapter 31, after all of the instruction about how to construct the tabernacle, it says this. It says, the Lord said to Moses, see, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Ur, of the tribe of of Judah, I'm sorry, and I have filled him with the spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, To work in gold, silver, bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood to work in every craft. I find this to be so meaningful. This is the God who created the universe out of nothing. He could have just spoken and the tabernacle would have just appeared. But rather than doing that, he calls by name certain people. And it says that he filled them with his spirit. This is actually the first time in the Bible that someone is spoken of as being filled with the spirit of God. And it should remind us that even as the spirit equipped these men to build the tabernacle, so it is the spirit of God that is enabling us by his grace to build the local church. We ought to be filled with the spirit daily. But it says that he calls these people by name. He fills them with his spirit and it says that he gives them ability and skill and craftsmanship and artistic design, I find it so encouraging. Now it's true that, that no one is ever going to be called and equipped in quite the same way as a Ab and Bezalel. This was a particularly sacred calling for them, but it's very clear that God is an artistic God. He loves beauty. He loves truth and he loves skillful design. It's very clear here that he is the one who gives artistic gifts to people. He is the one who gives skills to men and women, many like you. Philip Reichen says that artistic ability is the ability to incarnate the good, to give visible expression to beautiful ideas and godly thoughts. And many of you in this room have this God-given gift. And so listen, if you're an artist... Be encouraged. If you like to draw, if you like to paint, if you carve, if you write music, if you're into fashion, if you write poetry, if you're a photographer or a graphic designer, please know that your eye for beauty and your skill to express it and to bless the world with more of it, it's very pleasing to God. He is honored as you highlight and skillfully display his beauty and his truth throughout your work. And listen, not just to to detract from the artist, but let's broaden the application even more. See, at times I think that we can over-spiritualize the work of ministry within the church as if being a pastor or being a prophet like Moses is is truly the godly role to fill. Like like pastors are the most godly people and everybody else just, just does their menial jobs in order to support the real work of ministry in the church. But that is very unbiblical. As we see here and as we see many other places, God has equipped all of us to skillfully work and to have dominion over this world. We can't ignore people like Aholiab and Bezalel and the gifts that God has given them. And so whether you are a financial guy or a girl, whether you are skillfully teaching kindergartners or high schoolers, whether you are a plumber or an electrician, whether you work in HR or in the medical field, whatever you are called to do, you can do it in God's name and for his glory. It's beautiful. Let's get rid of the idea that there is a sacred and a secular skill set for our vocations. No, by God's design, all of it is sacred. All of it can be consecrated to the Lord and can bring him great glory. So let's be skillful and creative people that makes much of God, that makes much of the peace and the hope and the rest that can be found in him alone. And that brings us to our fifth and to our final point. Point number five is to rest. Friends, it is December 10th. You have 15 days till Christmas. Sorry. I I don't know how tired you are today. I don't know how busy the week ahead of you is. I don't know how much more shopping you still have to do. But here is what I do know. The Christmas season is not supposed to be about busyness. It's supposed to be about rest. The rest that God has given us through the life, death, and powerful resurrection of his son, Jesus, from the grave. And we can see this very clearly in our text today. The the instruction for the tabernacle is complete. We've we've gone through it all, and we've covered a lot of material. The the Ark of the Covenant, the table for bread, the golden lampstand, the bronze altar, the courtyard, the priestly garments, how to consecrate the priests, the altar of incense. Moses and Aholi Eben Bezalel, need to get busy. There's a lot of work that needs to be done. And a quick reading of these chapters might be overwhelming to you. And our Christian lives can feel just as overwhelming at times. Obedience before God can be very hard. There's a lot that needs to be done in our souls and in our families and in the world around us. But church, we must notice how it all ends. The, the instruction about the tabernacle ends with yet another reference to the Sabbath day, the Lord's day. Verses 12 to 14 talk about a day of rest. And we actually see that God talked about the Sabbath back in chapter 23 as well. And so all of these many instructions about the tabernacle, they are quite literally sandwiched between instruction for the Sabbath day. Why? Because God is all about rest, church. Consider how beautiful and refreshing this is for your soul. This, this section of instruction, it ends with a reminder about the Sabbath day. It, it actually says that the day of rest, the, the Sabbath, is to be a sign of the covenant that God is making with Israel. You see that in verse, verse 17. The day of rest, the Sabbath, is to be the sign of the covenant. Why? Because our God is a God of rest. He is a God of rest and rich relationship. He is a God of refreshment and joy and pleasure. And listen, he wants above all for your life. Those words above all can be seen in verse 13. He wants above all the Sabbath to be the picture of our relationship with him. More than the altar of incense. More than the wash basin, more than the anointing oil, I would argue even more than the altar of sacrifice and ultimately the cross itself. God wants the Sabbath to be the picture of our relationship. I love how verse 17 says that the Sabbath is to be the sign of the covenant. Why? Why is it that? Because it says the Lord himself rested on the seventh day of creation. And so in Genesis chapter 2, it says that after six days of creation, God rested on the seventh day. Genesis actually paints a picture, an image of God on the seventh day sitting down on his throne in order to reign over the good and perfect and restful creation that he had made. And then as you know, in Genesis chapter 3, it says that humanity fell into sin and our experience of that restfulness Was lost, but God was not lost, nor was his restfulness ever lost. No, our God has always been, and he will always be, a God of perfect. Rest And immediately after our sins plunged us into ruin, God himself began to work to restore us to that place of rest. He, in Genesis chapter 3, promises a seed that would come from the descendant of woman who would crush the serpent's head in order to restore the rest that was coming. He gives pictures and images that reflect this truth. He gives the tabernacle as a picture of Eden and what had been lost, but what he was again working back towards. Friends, and there is a day coming. There was a day coming what a glorious day when the God who on the seventh day of creation sat down on his throne there was a day coming when he stood up again and he entered into this world he laid his glory aside and he stepped into humility and he became a little baby in order to live without glory without praise without trumpet sound he entered into this world he stepped into our lives in order to do what we could not do so that through his life and his death and his resurrection, he might restore the rest and restore the peace and restore the joy and restore the hope that was lost, so that he might look at you this morning in the midst of all you have going on and he might say, come to me. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He stood up and he stepped into humanity so that he might be so that we might be restored to him so that he might be our dwelling place and he returned back to the father and he has sat down the works complete our rest is guaranteed and so redeemer family may we be a restful people even as we pray even as we give even as we obey Even as we create, above all, above all, may we be a restful people. May we be so confident in the work that Jesus has done for us that we in every circumstance are able to fully rest in him. May we not toil this December. May we not labor and work and create in our own strength. No, may we do it all in his name and for his great glory. May the world around us look upon us and say, wow, those Christians are not just busy they look at us and say, wow, those are restful people. May our lives, may our December be a picture of the rest that we have in him. Amen? Will you stand with me as I pray?